Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 186. My guest today is Michal Kroszynski, who is Associate Professor of Organizational Behavior at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. He was behind the first press article, appearing in The Guardian in 2015, warning against Cambridge Analytica. That scandal involved the unauthorized acquisition of personal data from millions of Facebook users. Cambridge Analytica, a political consulting firm shaped by Steve Bannon, the CEO of Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, used this data to build psychological profiles for targeting political advertising, significantly impacting public opinion and potentially influencing votes such as Brexit and the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Those votes occurred the year after Michal warned about Cambridge Analytica. He also co-authored Modern Psychometrics, a popular textbook, and has published over 90 peer-reviewed papers in prominent journals such as Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Nature Scientific Reports, and others that have been cited over 18,000 times. He has a PhD in psychology from the University of Cambridge, as well as master's degrees in psychometrics and social psychology. Let's get into the interview. Michal Kaczynski, it's a pleasure to have you on Artificial Intelligence and You. You have been doing some pretty pivotal research and propelled into the public consciousness in a big way around 2012 with work on privacy. And a paper published at that point with the arresting title of Private Traits and Attributes Are Predictable from Digital Records of Human Behavior. That's uncharacteristic in the world of academic papers where usually the titles are impenetrable. This one is accessible and alarming. Can you talk about how you got into that work? Maybe lead us into that gently before we start dropping bombs. Uh, Peter, great question. Yes, I'm trying to make titles as and papers as accessible as possible. I think that most of my papers, hopefully all of my papers can be read by anyone without any academic titles. Interestingly, at the time, no one really took this paper seriously. Academics thought that it's kind of not really serious to study Facebook because who cares? That's not where people are. That wasn't important in the academic world at that time. It's kind of hard to believe from the perspective of today. And other people thought it was just funny. You know, you can take someone's Facebook likes and predict their political orientation or personality, intelligence, other traits. So people just it got popular, but it got popular, I feel, for all the wrong reasons. People thought it was funny that you can take someone's Facebook likes and predict their personality. And people dove into, you know, which particular likes are predicting what, while completely ignoring the main message of the paper. Guys, this can be done on a massive scale without people's knowledge at an extremely low cost. And then that led shortly to an article in The Guardian that, and this is where the bomb dropped, and maybe you can describe your involvement with that. 
Actually, I think the first popular article was published in a German or Swiss magazine, Das Magazine, actually. And it went viral in Europe and then American outlets got interested as well. But this was very late, many years afterwards. So to give you a bit of an idea of a timeline, back in 2011 and 2012, Facebook was working on building predictive models aimed at predicting intimate psychological traits from people digital footprints, such as likes and status updates. And Facebook, of course, wasn't first. There were many other companies at the time. They were using digital footprints to predict people's intimate traits. Though Facebook struck me as particularly important because there was just already at that time, back in early 2010s, so many users of this platform leaving their digital footprints every day. And even if you were very private about your life, there were other people that, you know, maybe posted a picture of you or left a comment on your wall or maybe discussed you in their private messages between themselves. Now, you may have not even known that some content or some thoughts about you were revealed in private Facebook messages. But of course, Facebook did know. So back in 2012, Facebook published a patent saying, hey, you know, we have this technology that allows us to take people's Facebook likes and predict their personality with very high accuracy, accuracy comparable with personality questionnaires that require you to go to a psychologist and take a questionnaire. Sometimes it takes an hour or two and you are very well aware that you're undergoing this process and it takes a lot of time and it's an opt-in thing. And even if it's not opt-in, even if somehow someone forces you to this, take this personality questionnaire, you can choose to lie and misrepresent yourself. Now, Facebook's approach was fundamentally different. They would just take your digital footprints that you thought had nothing to do with intimate traits and then use machine learning and artificial intelligence to extract accurate information about your intimate traits from sexual orientation through personality to political orientation. Now, the scientific world and policy-making world didn't even notice. They didn't think it was possible. My fellow academics at the time would say, Hey, who cares? First of all, who cares about Facebook? Why should that be a subject of interest for us serious scientists? But also, they just didn't think it was possible. They would say, look, you know, psychometricians or psychologists may spend several years developing a very carefully crafted personality questionnaire. And then you need to standardize and pilot this questionnaire on thousands of people. How could it be that you could just look at someone liking a funny goat video or funny cat video on Facebook and just extract the same kind of information that just didn't fit in uh, our cognitive models here in psychology. So I decided to test it. I was like, hey, folks, that's a scientific question. If you think that this is not possible, well, as psychologists, we have tools to check whether what Facebook says is actually true. So it took me uh, and my colleagues quite some time, but about a year later, we managed to finish our research and publish a study where we showed that you can take Facebook likes and our access to Facebook likes, of course, was much smaller than whatever Facebook itself can have access to. So we had about 60,000 people and those 60,000 people, each one of them donated their Facebook likes to our research program. They also filled in a bunch of traditional personality questionnaires and political views questionnaires and so on. And then we were able to show that a very simple machine learning method, machine learning method that is first simpler than whatever Facebook 
has access to, is able to predict people's intimate traits with extremely high accuracy, accuracy previously observed only in the context of a psychological lab. Did or does Facebook have psychometricians, to your knowledge, that were doing this work and consciously figuring out what these traits were? Or were they just running models and letting the models come up with predictions that would happen to match these things, but no one cared what traits they were actually correlating to? Well, the answer is yes on both accounts. So first of all, there was a very strong data science and psychology team at Facebook at the time. There still is. But more importantly, what this research shows is that you don't really need to involve psychologists to look at anybody's account and try to figure out what kind of person they are. You know, we could do this before Facebook. You could hire yourself a psychologist and have them analyze writings or speeches or behavior of a particular person and then estimate for you what kind of person we are dealing with and, you know, how to maybe approach them, how to manipulate them and so on. And big business and politicians have been using this approach for a long time. They would hire consultants and they would say, hey, can you tell me about this rival, you know, my political rival? Can you tell me about their personality, about their strengths and weaknesses so I can use it in my own political competition here? But the difference here is that you don't need any psychologists. You can take a fairly simple machine learning model and run similar predictions arguably predictions of higher accuracy that whatever a human could achieve and do it for billions of people simultaneously and very cheaply. Not only that, I think we shouldn't forget that while most of our work as psychologists pertains to, you know, using some questionnaires to try to predict personality and then use this predicted personality to try to find ways of improving people's lives, matching them with a better job or better psychological therapy, or maybe finding ways of convincing them to stop smoking or start exercising more. Now, you don't need to reduce a person to a few numbers representing their personality or intelligence or whatnot in order to make those predictions. We do it as psychologists because it's just a simple and easy way. Now, computers can do it in a way more complicated way. Computers can look at your past behavior, your choices on Facebook, your books you have read on Kindle, your web browsing history or search logs, and then use this information not to predict your personality. That's interesting, but that's not that important. But to predict your future behavior, predict which of the political messages you'll be most susceptible to fall for, what products we can sell you, how to convince you to stay at home and not go to vote. So the potential of this technology is way beyond what a human-centered, psychologist-centered psychology could achieve before that. And this is where the trail gets viral. Facebook executives have said that their goal is to get people to spend as much time as possible on the platform. That's one thing. But then what you have described is something that's highly monetizable. And perhaps at this point, you could connect the dots for us that led between Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, and Ted Cruz. Well, Facebook's patented technology, again, was not the first and not the last one of similar models. Before Facebook, there were companies, marketing companies, PR companies that were using similar models. Most of the time, they wouldn't 
use the term personality, they would refer to consumer clusters or behavioral dimensions. But what they essentially meant is we're predicting a type of a person, a character of a person. Now, after Facebook, after this patent, there were, of course, many other companies, including Cambridge Analytica, that either rediscovered or were told about the existence of such algorithms. It seems that people that originated this research at Cambridge Analytica, according to those folks, I don't know them in person, I've never met anyone from Cambridge Analytica, so I can't tell for sure. But in their early interviews, they would say, well, we've learned about this from Koshinsky's paper. Now, again, Koshinsky's paper, I didn't come up with those methods. I was trying to warn people against the potential of already existing tools and methods. And my paper was pretty clear on how potentially unethical and dangerous the use of those methods could be. But of course, without appropriate regulation, without appropriate consumer protections, there will be people that will be willing to monetize such methods. Now, in fact, when Cambridge Analytica started doing those things, they were already becoming, luckily, increasingly difficult. At the time when I was writing my paper, Facebook likes were public by default. If you opened a Facebook account, and if you didn't spend quite some time exploring the privacy options and changing the default settings, your Facebook likes were visible to anyone including people that didn't even have a Facebook account. Essentially, any company, any individual could just type your name or type your user ID and get your gender, age, your profile picture, your Facebook likes from the platform. Now, after the publication of my paper back in 2013, there was an internal discussion at Facebook. We actually have documents confirming that. And about two or three weeks later, they decided to change this default setting, which is actually interesting because on the surface, they were completely dismissing my research. They were calling me a pseudoscientist. They were saying this is absolutely stupid and impossible what I'm doing, completely forgetting, by the way, that I was just trying to replicate what they already patented a year or two before. So, But apart from dismissing the importance of this research in an obvious attempt to just discourage policymakers to you know, do anything about this, essentially, they also changed significantly their internal privacy rules. So about two weeks after the publication of my paper, they switched off the public access to Facebook likes. So essentially, now not everyone could see what you're liking or doing on Facebook. So by the time that Cambridge Analytica came along in 2015 and 16, it was already more difficult to get this data, which doesn't mean that it was impossible. In fact, it turns out that Cambridge Analytica obtained its data, or at least original batch of data that they used to develop those Facebook-like models. They obtained it by hiring academics that would just go out and collect the data for them under the guise of university research, and then sell for quite some money this data to Cambridge Analytica. So basically, you wrote a paper saying don't do this, this would be bad. And then a bunch of people came along and said, how do we do this thing that you said we shouldn't do? Uh, we'd like to do that. <laughs> and this led to some prominent influence of obvious controversy that has been studied extensively around the 2016 presidential election in the US and the 2016 Brexit vote. Since then, this technology has only gotten 
much easier to implement thanks to available data and computing power. Where has it gone since then? Where do you think it is going to go? Where are you afraid of it going? Well, so we should not forget that companies like Cambridge Analytica, that's just small players that are also silly enough to be very loud about things they are doing and thus annoying the rest of us and policymakers. The real threat comes from much larger players, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Instagram, bunch of other companies of the type have much more access to users' data than whatever Cambridge Analytica could dream of. Not to mention that data from smaller companies or from large companies as well alike is very often repackaged and resold on various data markets, meaning that you do not need to have any users of your own. You do not need to engage in any research program of your own. You can either go to Facebook directly and use Facebook marketing platform to sell your products or sell your candidates to users. And then in this way, use the algorithms that Facebook developed. Or you can go to one of the online marketplaces that contains data on literally billions of people and purchase email addresses or Facebook account numbers of people from different psychological types of different demographic groups. Very little known fact, but as an advertiser, you can go to Facebook and say, look, this is an ad and I would like to show this ad to 35 to 37 year old gay men that have liberal views and live in San Francisco and got divorced in the past and also have such and such income and own a house. And you can essentially use hundreds, literally hundreds of psychodemographic characteristics in order to pin down a small group of people that you can then approach in a very highly personalized way. And of course, you wouldn't do it manually. You would use algorithms to split the audience of Facebook into tiny subgroups and then pick which psychological message works best in a particular subgroup. Now, again, you can do it manually where you could hire a psychologist and tell you, hey, you know, this is how you talk to liberals and this is how you talk to conservatives and this is how you talk to mothers versus fathers versus young people, old people and so on. You can design those very tiny and very detailed clusters of people and talk to them directly using psychological science to inform how you talk to them. But of course, many companies just do it automatically. They come up with hundreds or thousands of potential types of messages that are often generated automatically and then blindly throw them at those little audiences or on the huge audience divided in those little tiny clusters and then immediately start monitoring which message works best for which group. So in this way, having spent, you know, maybe a few thousand dollars on your online advertising campaign, you can start honing in very accurately on what particular type of message, on what image, on what call to action, what historical reference or cultural reference works best with a particular tiny group of people. And in this way, become persuasive at the level that before was reserved to, you know, the most skilled influencers, seasoned salespeople with a very deep knowledge of a particular person and psychological tricks that would spend hours trying to close the deal just with one person at a great expense of research and time. Now you can do exactly the same thing, 
just not for one person, but for hundreds of millions of people at the same time. Is there, to your knowledge, adequate guardrails around this being used for more sinister purposes than consumerism? You can use this to sell beer, for instance, but then when it comes to political advertising, for instance, I know that I've run ads on Facebook where they've rejected them as having a political message. And I had to go back in and say, no, your algorithm is wrong. My advertising this podcast and this book is explicitly about something that's designed to inform people about those messages, not push an agenda. So in that respect, at least, I fell afoul of something that was overly sensitive. What do you think of the way that they appear to have limited the use of that information? Well, both policymakers and platforms themselves try to regulate what's happening. What's actually worrying is that policymakers tend to push this duty, this obligation on platforms themselves, which is both in Europe and in America, the same thing happens. The regulators would say, well, what's going on? It's wrong. So you, Facebook, you, Instagram, you, Twitter, go and figure it out or else. Now, this is extremely problematic. And your example very nicely illustrates that. Why should private company decide on what Peter Scott can say and what you can't? Why should private company be able to muzzle speech as they see fit? They do not have social uh, license to do this. We didn't elect their CEOs and management boards. They are not responsible in front of us. They are responsible to regulators and tax office. They are not responsible to the society. But they're entitled to set the rules on what advertising they accepted. That was where it happened. It wasn't even a conversation I had. It was just accidentally objecting to the opposite of what was going on. But I think we're all wondering to what extent what happened that in um, 2016 that was so revealed by the press is happening to an even greater extent under the covers right now. Well, I think that what advertising a company is willing to accept and what advertising it's not willing to accept, it's already a matter that society should have a say in. Imagine if Facebook and Google and Microsoft one day said, well, we're not going to accept any ads from progressive politicians or politicians or Republicans, or let's remove the sitting president from a platform, which Twitter did. Now, I'm probably more outraged by what Donald Trump does on Twitter than, uh, you know, great majority of people around me. And yet I would also be very reluctant, or let me phrase it differently. I'm thinking it's outrageous that a private company would have right to muzzle and silence the official that was elected by the citizens of this country. And this relates not only to advertising, but also to what subjects we're allowed to discuss on those platforms and what subjects we're able to circulate. I'm not a free speech absolutist. I think that advertising and speech should be regulated, but it should not be regulated by private profit-driven companies. It should be regulated by societal institutions where we can elect the leaders and where the leaders of those institutions are responsible mm -hmm. to us citizens. So you were quoted in 2018 as saying, basically going forward, there's going to be no privacy whatsoever. 
Have we arrived at that point already? Where do we stand on that trajectory, in your opinion? Well, we definitely live in a post-privacy world. And I say it with sadness and worry because my original intention when I was undertaking my research agenda was, hey, let's try to test and identify privacy threats and try to come up with ways to minimize those threats. Now, unfortunately, the more I studied this subject, the more I understand about it, the clearer it becomes to me that a motivated third party, be it your neighbor or a company, profit-driven company, or your government or a government of another country, if they're sufficiently motivated and sufficiently is uh, very low these days, they can know things about you that potentially you don't even know about yourself. And you think that this is a preposterous suggestion, then let's face it, we are constantly interacting with systems or people or institutions that know more about us than we know ourselves. And one of the simplest examples is physicians. We go to a doctor to tell them about our symptoms, hoping that they would know more about us than we know ourselves and will tell us, okay, this is the disorder or disease you're suffering from, and this is how we're going to hopefully <laughs> be able to fix it. Now, anybody who used the recommender system or Google search knows that you come to this platform, you share some information, you ask a question, and you hope that this platform knows better than you what you're looking for and is able to give you the content that you want. And there was the case some years ago of the target chain being able to tell from purchasing patterns when a woman was pregnant before she knew. Uh, exactly. And since then, of course, not much has changed, simply because this subject is virtually impossible to regulate. You can prevent companies. You can demand that companies do not run prediction models aimed at predicting whether someone is pregnant or not. But whether you label your prediction model pregnancy prediction model or dimension 76 prediction model that happens to correlate very highly with people being pregnant, it's just that we refuse to know it or we refuse to look at the data to come to this conclusion. But still, it's a great prediction model that helps us to target people with diaper ads and stroller ads and so on. That's extremely difficult to regulate and that's data that is difficult to control simply because companies knowing more about us can provide us with much better customer experience. When we go to Netflix or Amazon, we want those companies to be able to give us advice what movie to watch next, what products we should purchase. Going to Google, I want Google to look when I'm asking it for directions, for example, using Google Maps. I want Google to know where I am at the moment so it can help me to get where I want to get. And I want Google to track me on the way so they can live update where I'm standing and where I should be going next. But moreover, if I somehow manage to use Google Maps without sharing the information about my own location, I would be literally free riding on the shoulders, on the backs of all of those other people that shared their location with Google because Google Maps works not by magically knowing how to get from point A to B in the fastest way, but by observing how people do it and then using this information to advise further people how to navigate around the world. So one could say, well, maybe we should just 
ban Google Maps and similar apps and just let people figure out way around using paper maps like, you know, it's 1980s again. But first of all, this would be outrageous. Second of all, a lot of our technology from self-driving cars to, you know, public transport systems would stop working, not to mention the huge social cost. If you live in the same neighborhood your whole life, that's great for you. You probably don't need Google Maps to navigate around. But if you're an immigrant or a single parent that just moved to a new place or uh, you just moved to a new city, that's just or travel to a new city, that's just a lifesaver. Not to mention that by constantly optimizing routes that people take around, Google Maps is saving gazillions of tons of gasoline mm-hmm. every year because it just shortens people path. So it's not only saving time, but also saving the environment, Mm. which essentially shows that we're in this progress trap where sharing our data is giving us nice and desirable and convenient and useful things. But on the other hand, the same sharing of the data exposes us to tremendous risks of losing our privacy. And from a psychologist's point of view, is this going to result in us evolving into people that are comfortable with other people knowing or society or companies knowing all of this data about us? Well, fortunately or unfortunately, we as a species are pretty used to not having privacy. Our brains evolved the longest in the modernity where we have shutters in our windows and locked doors and we live surrounded by walls in small family units, this is just the last few hundred, maybe for some cultures, few thousand years. For most of the history of humanity, we would live as a small group roaming savanna, summer together with no doors, no locks, where everything was shared and everything was known by everyone around us. So in some perverse ways, this new technologies bring us back to where we were before our migration from the savannah and small villages to large anonymous cities. Interesting way of looking at it. I think we have obviously a lot more going on in our lives now than we did when we were roaming the savannah and some of it might not be things that we want generally known, but thank you for illustrating that point. That's the end of the first half of the interview. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, researchers at the University of Montana conducted a study suggesting that artificial intelligence can match the top 1% of human thinkers on a standard test for creativity. Dr. Eric Guzik, an assistant clinical professor in UM's College of Business, and his partners used the Torrance Tests of Creative Thinking, a well-known tool used for decades to assess human creativity. They compared the responses from GPT-4 to the scores of 2,700 college students nationally who took the Torrance tests in 2016. The submissions were scored by the Scholastic Testing Service, which didn't know AI was involved. GPT-4 came out in the top percentile for fluency, the ability to generate a large volume of ideas, and for originality, the ability to come up with new ideas. It was in the 97th percentile for flexibility, the ability to generate different types and categories of ideas. This requires some commentary. The hardest button that most people have after fearing whether they'll lose their job to AI is thinking that AI cannot be creative, or being offended when it is. 
Whenever it shows up in conversation, it's a live grenade that needs to be diffused. A large part of the contentiousness is due to our not understanding what creativity is, although we think we know it when we see it. And also that many people see it as an exclusive marker of humanity. And make no mistake, when a human being creates a great work of art, literature, or music, it is through a sublime process of communing with an ineffable source of inspiration. When AI does it, nothing of the sort is going on. But the output, nevertheless, can check all our boxes for what constitutes creativity. Another factor is that large language models are highly optimized for passing standardized tests of any form. This is the paradox. If you want to measure the creativity of human subjects, if you want to rank them, you need a quantitative instrument of some kind that looks like a test that can be scored. And LLMs are very good at dealing with anything like that. It may very well be that humans cannot score highly on such tests without being creative, but it's not necessarily the case that LLMs that beat them on the tests are going to do just as well in less formal contexts. The paradox, and this is just my opinion, my hypothesis, is that as soon as you try to analyze this in an academic methodology, you move more into the pattern completion sort of territory where LLMs are naturally good. It's practically a quantum observer effect type of condition to do some physics geeking out. So how do you form useful conclusions? No, I don't have an answer for that yet. Next week, we'll conclude the interview with Michal Krasinski, when we'll talk about theory of mind, which is the ability of a creature to understand that another one has a mind, and research around whether AI has it. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.